Hello and welcome to another episode of Mutual Assured Conversation. It's been a little while. We've managed to record one episode in the last about six months, I think. Um, and it's going to carry on being slightly impulsive when we feel like recording one, to be completely honest with you. But we thought 2020 has been a year like no other. It was the right moment to have a bit of a look at what has happened this year, to put it in some form of context. Now, unfortunately, once again, I was without Luke for this podcast. On this occasion, uh, work commitments made it impossible for him to be part of the podcast. Very much look forward to welcoming Luke back soon. If he doesn't make it back to the next podcast, we're going to have to start a petition to get Luke back on the podcast. That's the only thing left to do. But I was delighted to be joined by two of the fast rising stars of the public affairs sector in Wales. Um, that was Sarah Williamson and Callum Hughes. And we had a chat uh, yesterday evening talking through lots of the news stories of 2020, trying to get beyond the um, relentless detail of the day to day and just try and look at what the year as a whole has meant, what it's going to mean for this country, our politics, our society going forward, what impact it's had on culture, and also considering some of the non-pandemic stories and how they interrelated to the pandemic itself. I think we ended up with a fascinating podcast. I hope you agree. I will be quiet now and let's get started. Welcome to the Mutual Assured Conversation podcast to Sarah and to Callum. Hello to both of you. Hi. Hello. So we're in December. We've made it this far. 2020 has had its challenges. There have been days when we perhaps didn't think we were going to see December. There were other days when we thought we were going to see December and everything would be long forgotten. But it is what it is. So before we get into any detail, I just want to ask each of you for a few words to sum up 2020. Sarah, can I come to you first? Um, oh, it's been very hit and miss. I think I've got very mixed feelings about 2020, but definitely a year to remember. And Callum? Um, I don't want to um, start off by saying something ostensibly negative. So <laughs> I was going to say that it's going to be the year that I think we all learn to appreciate the things in life that maybe we didn't take enough time to appreciate in the past. Um, and I can't help but think that um, in the not too distant future, we'll look back on this and think, wow, that was a truly extraordinary time. Yeah, I think you've got a really good point there. I do think that some of the things that I've certainly taken for granted in the past and the sort of um, ease and disposability of just getting the new exciting thing and ignoring perhaps what's good around me, um, you know, ranging from the, um, the most holistic of walks alongside the canal through to um, perhaps that Sabutio table I bought just before lockdown started. Um, you know, it, it has sort of perhaps added in my mind the real value of some things around us that I perhaps was a little bit ignorant of before, but took for granted, I think, before. And it would be nice to think that if everything gets resolved reasonably quickly with a vaccine um, in the new year, that, uh, that perhaps some of those aspects we managed to retain. Um, so let's 
look at the way in we don't want to get too much in in this discussion into the statistics there is more than enough statistics that could cover multiple podcasts indeed there are far more academic podcasts than this one out there doing exactly that um i don't want to get too much into the the um details of the politics um either in part because with all due respect we are for all the criticism that might go around in many directions at this moment in time there isn't a playbook for this and the politicians are still trying to work out what the right solution is at the right time and sometimes in each of our views they will get it right and sometimes they will get it wrong but i think we're all trying to see how some of this actually unfolds before we can take too uh, conclusive a view on that but just thinking about everyday life um how has how has the pandemic affected everyday life in a way that we think is going to carry on beyond it again let's let's go for the optimistic that six months into next year um most people will have been vaccinated infection rates will be very low and we're starting to look at what what the future is so what's changed now that is going to remain different in the future i was going to go to callum but he's just taking a swig of wine so i'm going to go to sarah instead um i was going to say the work-life balance i think people have started to appreciate that work isn't the be-all and end-all and they don't need to spend hours commuting every day um, and a lot of money commuting every day. So I think the work-life balance is definitely something that's changing. Um, and alongside that is working from home because a lot of people prefer it or want a blended approach. And I think that's definitely here to stay and hopefully that will be a good thing. Do you have any thoughts on that, Cal? Um, I think from my point of view, I, I, I would agree. Um, but I do feel that, um, uh, that, you know, in the not too so distant future, we'll end up having sort of conversations about um, the extent to which we're in more sort of favourable circumstances or the extent to which we're not in such kind of favourable circumstances. I think um, speaking rather selfishly from the point of view of a young person, I think that what this will do in terms of the sort of property market, for example, will be incredibly important for a lot of people like me. I think in terms of how it will shape the sort of job market, if every post effectively becomes a sort of um, its kind of own role where it doesn't matter whereabouts in the country you, you are based. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's it's now probably not outside of the realms of kind of possibility that that uh, that a firm could hire someone in uh, China to do the sort of same work if there's no requirement of having the sort of in-person kind of interaction then what's to say that that lies outside the realm of reasonable um, chance um, I think in terms of everyday life, um, I think you're absolutely on to something when you say that um, I think we'll start to see a rapid decrease in hands-on cash. Um, everything will soon be card-based. This, as I don't as I have to say, does come with a significant element of risk. Um, I think for everyone involved, I think particularly um, sort of elderly people will find this quite alarming. And I guess that's just that's part of the key point that I that I feel that if that I would kind of make on this, which is, um, I think, when shifts of this magnitude occur, um, there's there's 
an annoying and um, quite half-hearted kind of tendency to ignore the kind of groups on which it doesn't really benefit. And I think that we have to be quite mindful that this is not going to be thought of as a particularly, um, is that, so I think I, sh I, sh I should say that even if we shape this as a road to some kind of progress, it might not be interpreted that way by everyone involved. I think there've been so many good points that you've both pulled out of that. Um, almost don't know where to start in, in terms of joining in on the, on the conversation. Um, but I think maybe on that final point, it, there is a risk that the, the think tankers and the people who are discussing these ideas are generally in jobs that you can work remotely, you can work from home. There's a lot of what traditionally would be called blue collar jobs where that simply isn't an option. Um, and also to pick up on, on what you said about the idea of we could see this as a new wave of outsourcing. Um, if, if you conclude that there isn't enough advantage of the, the old agglomeration economic approach of having lots of people together, ideas sparking between them or bouncing off them, which I think we probably still need to find in some way, shape or form, and isn't that easy um, in, in video conference form, um, then it does get to the stage where yes, it, it could see another round of outsourcing to the lowest labor costs, which um, has, some economic logic to it but i don't think is the nature of of society that we're looking to to build um as we come out of this so once again some really interesting points coming out of that um the, the money one is a, is a fascinating one as well because of course one of the side effects of this and i've i've got to be honest i'm quite content using my card everywhere now i've quite happily seen this happen a few years ago um, and occasionally now I get caught out. It's no good going to the supermarket where you need to stick a coin in the trolley to get the trolley out because I keep getting stuck now. Um, I'm, I'm probably making up that pound by driving around trying to find a supermarket that doesn't have that rule. Um, <laughs> but um, it also, of course, has a, a bit of a personal privacy knock-on effect because everything we spend on a card is logged. So someone somewhere is able to track all our purchases. And I, I wonder whether that might lead to an innovation of some kind. I mean, it couldn't be done with a credit card for obvious reasons, but perhaps with a debit card where perhaps there'll be some form of anonymous debit card that will emerge where payments are not logged. But uh, I don't know, maybe, that, maybe, maybe those behind the cryptocurrencies have already come up with a solution to that that they just haven't told me about yet. <laughs> well, I, I... I think it's actually so on the day on which we sit here, we have sort of read the news and found that a, it's a high street chain that has been on the high street for 242 years is about to go um, or is at serious risk anyway of going um, into administration. And, and I think, you know, it's um, it's it's quite sad that we almost expect this now. I think it's even more sad that we expect a great deal more of this over the next kind of coming months. Um, and it's a stark reminder that um, outside of, I mean, like if we're honest, the sort of jobs that people like us do, um, it's very, very difficult. And it's a very, very strange time for lots of people. Yeah, and I guess the things like the high street, I guess it relates to the money point as well. They're trends that were happening gradually have suddenly been accelerated. And we haven't necessarily, particularly when it comes to the high street, got the, um, the next stage of what a city centre looks like or a major town centre looks like 
in place at a time when the existing one um, is facing very severe strain. Um, and you wonder whether everywhere but the very biggest urban centres, and I mean, even they will be hit to an extent, but um, I mean, I'm recording this in Newport, where we've got two major cities within 40 minutes either side of us, less than that, obviously, if you're going west. Um, the, the pressure is immense on the high street already. And it's all well and good having the long term plans that you'll have more residential in a city centre, you'll have more of an experience based um, city centre offering than just retail. But that doesn't happen overnight. Um, Sarah, I mean, you're you're originally from Newport. Um, you're you're now over in Cardiff. Uh, you did the reverse journey to me. Um, you know, what what do you think in terms of the future of a Cardiff city centre? Oh, I mean, I again, I agree with everything that's been said. I think even Cardiff is at risk, to be honest. Um, Debenhams and Topshop are very big shops here. I mean, there's Debenhams that takes up one end of St. David's shopping centre. But I think it also goes beyond that because the cinema as well, there's been no one really going to the cinema recently and films that are meant to be released keep on getting postponed so they can get the crowds that they need to produce revenue. But I think the longer it gets postponed, the more damaging it is to the industry in a sense that no one is going back because everyone's getting streaming services and a lot of films are making the transition onto that instead of going to a cinema. I'll be honest, I'd have been part of the problem on that. I wish they put the Bond film on Netflix and I could have watched it by now, but anyway. Yeah. Um, but actually, I mean, that, that raises its own point, doesn't it? Because I mean, we've... Um, uh, having essentially adopted Black Friday from the United States. So Black Friday here used to be a day when everybody got very drunk and city centres were a complete mess. So actually, I think rampant commercialisation is probably preferable to that. Um, but um, so we've got American Black Friday instead now. But I noticed you in that lots of the, the politicians, and I completely get where they're coming from with this, were saying, don't just give your money to Amazon, shop locally and so on. I can see that point, absolutely. But I almost wonder whether we see Amazon now as this... Um, massive monolith as if it is just um, money flowing into Jeff Bezos's pockets and actually we're ignoring the fact that the delivery drivers from Amazon have kept us going through large amounts of this year they're not on um, uh, my understanding of how it works is that you know they're not on any form of contract um, they're on low pay for the amount of work they're doing they haven't got much in the way of terms and conditions there are a whole range of challenges like that. I know the gig economy was there before this, but the importance of that, they've almost become key workers, haven't they? People like Amazon delivery drivers and uh, some of the takeaway food um, services now that before were a, um, a nice to have um, coming out to the suburbs rather than having to, to go to a shop, um, but now have proven themselves to be pretty essential to our economy. So we've got a big challenge there in how we better reflect the importance of those jobs in terms of terms and conditions going forward, I think, haven't we? I would absolutely think, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think it's also um, important to, to sort of emphasise that the fact that, um, that we or indeed sort of anyone feels able to 
um, feels able to sort of raise these kind of concerns does not mean that we are anti as such the sort of all new sort of workplace that we may end up within four, five, ten years. Um, I think that um, I think that it's incumbent on all of us to simply um, to to um, keep in mind that if change is to be almost um, done outside of our world, if you like, I mean, in the sense that we basically feel as if massive kind of changes do kind of take place and it's up to us to just adapt to them, we have to be extremely mindful that not everybody adapts to them at the same rate. And it's incredibly important, I think, for the whole, the, for the, the whole sort of way in which we view other people, the whole in which we sort of interact with other people, that we understand that, um, that as long as we um, are more respectful, I think, of lots of other people's kind of views on this, and I might be kind of getting down a kind of road here that we may not wish to go down to a great extent, but the more that we do, I think the more we can have a more honest kind of conversation about the world that we want to be in. Um, because I think there is a um, quite a strongly held feeling among some that this will be, as you say, it will um, help to kind of line the pockets further, quite frankly, of those who don't need their pockets lining. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. And I think one area that we haven't talked about yet is the music industry and the independent venues and the gigs that are put on there. They're great and people love to go to them, but it's not possible at the moment. And we're really, really at a risk of losing them. And I think if people want them to continue, then there does need to be discussion on how to support the arts and how to support the music industry as well. Not to take away from that point, which is a, a very, very valid one. One thing that I have found quite encouraging this way, and where you're looking for little bits of inspiration at times, is the way in which there's been some innovation in the arts. I mean, the, the one that stands out to me most of all, if you haven't watched it yet, I, I hope it's still available and I recommend it. There is Swan Lake in bathtubs on BBC iPlayer. H have a look on the art section of BBC art iPlayer. It's only about five, six minute video, um, but it's some of the... Um, apparently, I, I'm not a ballet expert, I, this might not surprise you, um, but uh, apparently it's got some of the greatest ballet dancers around the world and they all recorded it in bathtubs and it's, it, you, you can't help but both watch it and think this is a bit silly and actually think this is totally inspired and this is actually putting down something that is a historic log of what this year was like. Um, and I do think actually there have been occasions where the arts have really risen to the challenge of what we needed this year. I mean, um, mm. I, I think back, um, I, I'm a little bit more of a run rig expert than I'm a ballet expert. And I'm not sure that gets me a huge amount more credibility on this um, podcast. Um, but run rig re-showed their last ever gig, which was at Stirling Castle. It was a big event and it, it um, happened a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly which year it was. Um, and I've actually got a DVD of it, so I could watch it whenever I wanted. But they did it as a um, as a stream, um, I think on YouTube, but on, on a platform anyway. 
Um, and as a result, lots of people came together. They were all sharing their messages in it. And it was a, it's a really silly thing in, in many ways. That's such a simple thing that can be done at any time. But because we were so uh, grasping for anything that sort of brought us together, and this was during the, the initial lockdown where we had very strict rules, um, I did feel that that was something that sort of brought me together with people with a similar interest for that evening. And I don't know, somehow it, it, filled, it filled an emotional need, I think. And um, I've seen a few examples of that over, over the year. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's almost a bit like, um, and I'm going to show my age a little bit here and say, because I wasn't around when this happened, but it was like, like it was a bit like, so when the internet first started to sort of come into being, it was- I just have to clarify, you're not showing your age, you're showing my age at the same <laughs> well, time, but carry on. Um, it, was, it was hailed obviously as being almost the answer to everything. And um, it was said to be the only way in which that we'd ever shop, bank, chat, browse, watch, it was going to be everything. And to a very large extent, it probably has been that. Um, but like with, um, like in the same way as um, with, uh, as, as with anything like sort of, um, uh, 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 a Pandora's box, um, so when it sort of outleaped love and um, hugs and kisses and all of the nice things in the world, I was, I was also jumped fire and hate and anger and fury. And it's worth, and I think it was um, Stephen Fry, actually, I think, was the first person who, um, who actually sort of turned me on to this, this, um, this sort of way of thinking. And, and I thought that's quite a good analogy for the way in which that we view the internet these days. Um, and, and as I say, I think that this is just accelerating. So we are supposed to talk about politics occasionally on this podcast. I mean, it's a bit hit and miss, to be honest. Um, I, I wouldn't like to go back and suggest that every podcast Luke and I ever record is actually much mentioned very much in the way of politics. And we're certainly supposed to record one on cricket at some point that never actually happened, which was essentially going to be Luke persuading me that I should be interested in cricket. Um, I'd love to be part of that podcast, I, I should say. <laughs> I might let you take my place, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about politics. In the bigger scheme, how has COVID and the pandemic affected our politics? I mean, our politics in whichever sense you want to take it, Welsh, British, international. Callum. Um, I feel slightly sort of guilty for starting this, sort of, um, this line off in this way. But and I have to say that I think that while I absolutely agree that... Um, that clearly there isn't anybody involved um, in the political um, area right now who thinks that any sort of current government has had an easy job of it. Um, clearly, these are extremely, um, extremely sort of um, uh, awkward and new kind of challenges that are being faced. But I think that it's highlighted the extent to which we, I think to quite a large extent are led by ordinary people who are, who are in a job that they're trying to do their very best at. Um, but I also think that um, the extent to which um, lots of sort of international governments have almost inferred that their kind of failings are actually as a cause of action by the public is quite alarming to me. 
and I'm quite concerned by that. Um, I feel that there's been a certain sense of, um, in the same way that a top kind of football manager gets all the um, gets all of the um, sort of cheers and all the kind of praise when the when the guy who he's who he's put on the pitch with sort of with like a minute left ends up getting the um, goal that is the is the is the is the, is the um, sort of match winner, um, but it's the sort of player who gets the cop when he doesn't score. I feel that there's certainly been an, an element of the introduction of extremely invasive sort of policy instruments, which when when they've proven to actually sort of bring about an end product that we see as being a step in the right direction, has gone straight on. It has been a big a sort of tick for any kind of current government. And then if it hasn't, it's been usually as an end result of um, sort of ill-discipline from the public, shall we say. Um, this is quite alarming to me. Um, and um, I, I think on that, I'll probably leave it there. Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Callum said. Um, I think every country has tried to show leadership and have tried to tackle COVID in their own way. And I mean, only time will tell who did it the best way and who could have saved as many lives as possible. But looking more domestically, I think COVID and the impact of COVID and devolution has shown that there is policy divergence within the three countries. And it's shown that to the population of the UK. So I think more people are aware of devolution and what the devolved governments actually do. Um, I do think the miscommunication and lack of communication between the governments have become clear and that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I think in the context I think of... it's fairly clearly not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure there's an upside to that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there might be um, in the context of independence and to see how well Scotland right. come out of this. Um, dependent what side you sit on. Um, because it has accelerated calls for independence again. And from a social aspect, fair enough, Nicola Sturgeon has shown to be a strong leader despite the exam fiasco, but at the same, ex same but opposite side, the economic drivers and the reliance on the UK and the reliance on Westminster for furlough schemes has maybe pushed independence back. So I think it will be quite interesting to see how COVID affects devolution and calls for independence as well. I do think that's a really interesting point because I, I recall saying at the start of the year that I felt that the independence movement in Scotland and the far smaller but certainly growing in profile movement in Wales, I think there can be a bit of a debate about the numbers, but definitely the profile is much higher than it, it was three years ago, for example. Um, I thought that was probably hitting about its peak moment because of where we got to with Brexit, because it kind of couldn't win. If Brexit went really well, then all the arguments that had been made about the um, decisions um, that are, are being uh, taken down in Westminster um, are, are irrelevant to us, are, are, are damaging us, start to fade away. 
It takes time, but they start to fade away. The flip side, if Brexit is an absolute disaster, and that's the basis of unraveling a few decades worth of union, trying to unravel 300 years worth of union in Scotland and even more in terms of Wales, becomes very unappealing. So it's almost like the nationalists couldn't win either way. And I think there's still an element of that. You, you see it with Nicola Sturgeon emphasising a referendum as soon as possible after the Scottish Parliament election. Now, in fairness, the counter to that is that Nicola Sturgeon, I think, has called for a referendum every year since the last referendum. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe I'm reading too much into that. Um, but you're absolutely right, Sarah, in the way that the handling of this pandemic seems to have extended the time period in which that's a relevant debate to have. What I expected to happen, where to start to fall away after um, we, we passed uh, formal Brexit day, granted we're still in a transition period, and I guess that would be a factor as well. But the, the pandemic and the differences of that seem to have really played a part. And I know that none of us, and I apologise to our listeners if they want us to get into massive detail about uh, health policy decisions um, from each nation, are not going to get that from us, partly because all three of us work in the health sector. So it's... It's not something we're going to go into a great deal of detail. I suspect the, the other two of you probably share my frustrations at various times this year where you sort of unloaded every opinion you've had on anybody you can because you can't say too much publicly. <laughs> um, and it, it's varied, I'll be honest. The, the, the blame has circulated and those I agree with have changed depending on what the issue is. But it's, it's sometimes been challenging to uh, um, keep fingers on lips during that time. Um, but the the profile, the understanding of what is devolved is so much stronger. You see it in the opinion polling and where you get um, regular opinion polling from the Wales Governance Centre for ITV Wales. Um, Mark Drakeford's profile as First Minister is far higher than it was before. Generally speaking, his approval ratings are far higher than they were before as well. It's not quite up to the um, level of his, his recognition. But um, And you've also had a very clear steer on that, that the public have felt more comfortable with Mark Drakeford Welsh Government's handling of COVID than they have with Boris Johnson UK Government's handling of COVID. Um, now that leads me to one frustration which is we're getting caught up in this England approach versus Wales's approach when actually the whole world is dealing with this and we perhaps should be looking at how Taiwan handled it, how South Korea handled it, and how Vietnam handled it. Um, and um, I think Chile's handled it quite well. I, I seem to remember hearing. Um, I might have stretched myself too far by saying that, but I think it was Chile was one of the others I've heard is a good example. Um, and we do need to look at it from a more international perspective. But it's the devolution argument, it's developed more in a year than I think it has in 20 years. Um, I think people's understanding of it, whether that will be reflected in turnout next year remains to be seen and we probably put, shouldn't put too much on that because there's still going to be an element of COVID in society one imagines come May next year so I, I wouldn't be surprised if turnout is slightly suppressed on that basis um, but it does seem to have very much changed the agenda w would you agree with that Callum? Yes I would um, I, I think as well that the way the um, that supplied country in this country has been almost sort of, I mean, they almost seem to um, show more of an interest in what's happening in Scotland than they do down in Cardiff Bay, actually, these days, um, which I've always found is quite amusing. Um, 
I did but, notice that Adam Price said this week that he wanted a union with Scotland. I mean, I've got good news for him. We're already in a union with Scotland. <laughs> yeah, um, and, I mean, it like, like it, it sort of does make you think like, oh, like if only, you know, it's like, like it would be great if Adam Price was here 400 years ago and, and then we might have been able to sort something out then, you know. Um, but there is a certain, um, I mean, I think on the, um, on sort of some of the points that you mentioned, I would just add to that that, um, like as you say, I think for every year since 2014, the sort of SNP has called for another kind of referendum of some kind. Um, almost in the same breath, they've said that they would then go and join the EU, um, which is an interesting way of doing things from those who look at sort of parliamentary kind of sovereignty and um, where the power lies. I mean, it 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 does seem remarkable, really, that. Um, it's, you know, four years since we were having that kind of massive sort of national sort of conversation about what some of these terms meant and what a future outside of this sort of EU would be. Um, but I think it's still a kind of valid point, I think, for those who wish to, um, to, to sort of lend their support to um, a more kind of nationalist party um, as to the extent to which their views may be changed by a sort of um, by an entry into the um, sort of EU quite soon afterwards, and should their um, sort of chosen party um, gain power, um, as, as, as I say, I don't think there's an awful lot of people who um, you know have got a great deal of intel on this because we are to quite a large extent sort of dealing with hypotheticals here. Um, but I would say so absolutely, um, I think sort of as a kind of UK nation, we are certainly much more aware of where the power lies, where the accountability lies, however, is slightly more blurred. Yeah, and perhaps we're also more aware of where the fault lines lie, because it's very easy, and, and we've seen it develop in Wales a little bit, with a, a noisier um, anti Senez, um presence. I mean, there is a party, in fact, I believe there's two parties technically, um, uh, fighting over the same name dedicated against it. It's also UKIP's position. There's a sizable, noisy minority in the Conservative Party um, who are quite hostile to the Senate as well, although not amongst the uh, members of it. Um, but uh, members of the Senate, that is. But you've kind of got these two extremes. What we've not got a huge amount of at the moment is people saying the pandemic has highlighted where the current devolution settlement doesn't quite work and where we need to make adaptations. Um, so you did have the peculiarity of um, furlough being extended in England when a new lockdown was launched and it not being available during the firebreak lockdown in Wales. And there was politics played with blame games going back and forth. But at the end of the day, the fact it couldn't be organised is the key issue here. Um, and that suggests that there's there's a bit of a flaw in the the more detailed elements when you get away from the um, the simple independence versus single unitary state argument. Um, so the, uh, one thing that struck me that was a bit weird as we sort of got towards the end of the summer was I almost found it slightly strange that we were discussing topics that weren't COVID related. It had been so 
dominant at the start of the year. It had been so overreaching that somehow in my brain, I couldn't quite compute how other stories were coming in. And it was actually, I watched a program which was about literature during the plague. Um, and um, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm dropping a lot of BBC Four hits here. You know, let's be completely honest. Um, it was fascinating. Can't remember the name of it, but it was fascinating. I think it was called Plague Fiction. There you go. That was a good name for it. Um, and one of the things they said in there is a lot of the literature from the period of the plague actually doesn't focus too much on it. It's, it's always there in the context. But of course, life goes on. There are other things that are taking place. And that sort of made me, I think, manage to make a bit more sense out of how other stories were emerging during the year. Obviously, most recently, we've had the US election, um, which I think in relative terms actually turned out to be a rather smoother exercise than many thought it could have been. Um, we had the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think we've probably had a bit of an accentuation of um, some of the culture war topics, but I wonder a little bit whether actually that's because we're all just a little bit more tense about everything else that's going on and perhaps we're all that little bit more on edge and that pushes us slightly more to be in, in a slightly argumentative position. Um, I'm sure people would argue against that. Um, so I just thought I'd bring in some of those topics and, and get your thoughts on, um, not necessarily them in isolation, but how they link in with the pandemic. Is there an element of the general atmosphere that we have that has meant that it has become a time of um, challenging the status quo, a time of a bit of rebellion? Sarah, you look rebellious. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'd say definitely. And I'd say the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, there was over 60 countries involved with local protests. I mean, it went over every continent apart from the Antarctic, and that's pretty self-explanatory. Why not? Um, so I think it's definitely a time that people are standing up and saying what they believe in. But I do agree that there is also a sense that people are almost looking for an argument. Um, I think the cancel culture has emerged quite strongly um, in the whole debate about woke, not woke, and all of that. So I think 2020, it's just such a, such a diversive year. And that was seen in the US elections and Black Lives Matters movements and COVID even, it was seen throughout nearly every aspect of the year. So I think it is definitely something that people are going to draw on. Um, yeah, and that's and really interesting. Sorry, I, uh, sorry oh, no, go ahead. I, I'm just going to jump in for a second because on that particular point, because that's really interesting, isn't it? COVID has almost become part of a culture war. So for example, mm -hmm. um, let's use Lawrence Fox as our example here because he, he's at the forefront of a lot of this. Now, there is some of the stuff that Lawrence Fox has been saying um, about the woke movement, which I've got some sympathy with. I probably wouldn't generally take it quite to the extent that he does. But there's definitely something there that resonates with me. But now he's sort of tied that in with an anti-lockdown uh, rebellion against um, measures that um, infringe upon our liberty as part of a health emergency. And to me, I don't necessarily associate those two things. And it, it's almost as if the, there's a feeling if you're fighting a culture war that you need to bring in 
whatever the story of the day is to make it part of that battle. I think that's, um, I'm the sort of person who um, has in my head a sort of short list of my sort of favorite authors and kind of commentators and everything. Um, but I really would hope they'd keep their noses out of some topics. Um, and it doesn't, as, as I say, it doesn't impact um, my own sort of, my own kind of view of them in terms of their sort of work that I love. Um, it's just sort of, as you say, it seems to be evidence that what we've got here is um, a sort of um, some way of transforming the whole sort of pandemic into a sort of something that's actually not even half a health issue, half an issue about sort of culture and sort of politics more, but actually it's more about the, the whole sort of, it's more about the, the, um, the, the sort of issue about what this means for um, sort of everyone of different ages of, of, um, of our own population groups and etc than anything else which absolutely it should not be um i i think that i mean there are obvious overlaps i think with what's happened with the whole sort of black lives matter movement and the fact that um it happened when everybody was stuck indoors the most of their days kind of looking at their sort of ipads and their phones and their laptops for eight or nine hours a day of every day there's um, clear points to be raised there but I, I think um, I mean as, as I say I mean and I do uh, um, I do appreciate that we haven't got onto this as such but I think it's 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 um, the, the sort of key point that I would make on this is that it's started um, a long overdue um, sort of um, uh, a conversation that I think needs to be had and that is about what it actually means to work in the states as a um, as a, uh, a police officer, and this is something that has been looked well past for a long, long time. Um, to be doing that level of work in a country that has close to four hundred million guns, um, I think it's started a much needed. Um, sort of um, a much needed sort of conversation about what that job actually entails, and what and what the um, and well, like, I guess what we expect of people who hold that kind of role. Um, and as I say, I I think that's a long sort of overdue kind of conversation, and and I think that it would be a shame if we got so far down the the sort of rabbit hole of culture that we didn't address that that important point i think as well there's a, a bit of a difference that has got lost between what is a movement and what is a campaign to me black lives matter is a movement now it's a movement that might well develop campaigns within it um and I, i'd actually pick out a parallel to this. I think the, the Fridays for the Future campaign of the school kids um, is very similar. It's a campaign, it's a movement, oh, just to undermine myself there, I'm not, it's a movement rather than a campaign. Um, a campaign has a clear 
defined endpoint. You might campaign for a change in legislation. You might um, campaign for um, something that is currently inaccessible to be accessible, but it's got a clear endpoint. Black Lives Matter and Fridays for the Future are broader movements where it's very hard to define when you've achieved it. There is a good purpose behind it and you'll get in any movement you'll get extremes so it's you know if I wanted to go out and find somebody who was involved in in Black Lives Matter and was trying to turn it into a Marxist um, anti-neoliberal organization uh, um, argument I'm sure I could do so but in the same way that you can find extremes in pretty much any large-scale argument I, I think that is to to miss the point of it. I think there is something really positive about the overall movement, but it's not a campaign. There isn't a clear finishing mark. So, I mean, to, to break it down to uh, what might seem like a slightly trivial level, at what point are the footballers going to be allowed just to stand up rather than take the knee? At what point do you achieve what taking the knee is on a football pitch? Um, and th that's the difference between a movement and a campaign. So I kind of feel that we need to distinguish the two, respect the movement, but then understand what we've got to do in terms to deliver actual change through campaigns which come in strands from that movement. Um, and I think we, we all do have to be open-minded to that and appreciate that it's coming from a life experience that, that we don't have. Um, I guess the other thing that, that intrigues me a little bit and frankly slightly annoyed me during the American election was are we a little bit too obsessed with what goes on in the states do we conflate it too easily i mean the the entire principle of what it is to be the police in the united states is completely different to the principle of what it is to be the police in the uk yet you had people going around with defund the police banners in the uk um and i mean i, I think we did see it during the the us election as well quite how folks we got in it now it was fascinating it is interesting but we never have that kind of coverage of a German election or a French election, or frankly, England doesn't get that coverage of a Welsh election or a Scottish election for that matter. Um, so have we culturally got ourselves so tied in? I mean, you hear people jokingly refer to the feds. Is that perhaps a, a giveaway that um, we've inadvertently made ourselves into the 51st state, albeit one without a vote in a presidential election? Well, Either I think, of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the fact that we have a sort of Black Friday probably goes goes quite a long way to answering that very point. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I also think um, on the, um, as I say, the only the, you know, the the only sort of obvious issue that I have with the with the sort of Black Lives Matter movement, as you say, is that word movement. Because who's to say when said group has achieved whatever it has said it wants to achieve. Um, and I also think that, that while I, I agree that, um, you know, um, that we'd all sort of get on board with, if you like, the essence of the sort of point that, um, that um, is sort of being emphasised, um, the way that they've sought to, to abolish the police force in the States, it's not been an undercover sort of you know, they haven't so sort of gone about this in a um, in a sort of anything other than obvious way um so if that is to be seen as the end goal which 
I'm not saying that that it is, but they've been the whole sort of movement has been um, honest and upfront about achieving that that end goal. Then that's something that we can look at, and I think it's therefore perfectly reasonable for us to say that that's not something that well that I would necessarily lend my support to. Um, the thing about um, uh, our um, with with a lot of top sort of sports stars taking the knee, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I really would like to question if this would be done on a Saturday at Anfield with over with over sort of fifty thousand people in the stands. Um, I'm not sure it would be introduced by the authorities if. If they were full, <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I don't quite know how else to sort of put that, and and I'm not saying that to not to not to you know act in that way would be uh, sort of ill-advised because I think it might be quite sensible not to. Um, but it, it's just a sort of interesting sort of thing to sort of think about um, on the so on the point about the the election. I do agree. I think that, I mean, I look at what sort of goes on on the sort of other side of the pond, as they say, as an observer. Um, and I think that um, there does seem to be sort of something that, while it's fairly obvious um, why we do seem to adopt a lots of the same kind of trends that goes on in the States, in our food, in our um, trends, in our clothes, in um, our music, um, I'm, and I don't particularly oppose all of those. I really do wish that we would take us not so much of an interest in their politics, to be quite honest. Um, and I really um, don't see, or I'm, I am quite shocked how quite a lot of people on my um, sort of Instagram feed, for example, seem to know more about Trump and Biden than they do about pretty much anyone who actually has a much sort of closer um, or, or a much more sort of obvious link to their own well-being or to their own job or to their own salary or to their um, own kind of well-being. And I think it's an important message that, um, that if I could help in some way by trying to make that a little bit clearer, then I would. Taking the US election then, we, we've talked a lot um, in this about tensions about things being pushed to extremes is the election of joe biden a bit of a sign that actually when it comes to a health emergency people are looking for serious politicians rather than looking for the um um <laughs> barnstorming speech of a donald trump or indeed in this country perhaps the rhetoric that we've had associated either with Brexit on one side or Corbynism on the Labour left because we, we've gone into this at a stage where particularly at the UK level we've just had a general election which pretty much the divide was Brexit v Corbyn so we lost the likes of Rory Stewart, Nick Bowles, um, Owen Smith um, um, from uh, from Parliament, and we've had them replaced 
this isn't a fair account across the board, but in general terms, we've lost some moderates, some experienced parliamentarians, some people who looked at the detail of policy and had them replaced with some people who can repeat the same line about Brexit or repeat the same line about um, the evils of the Tories and, and the Blairites. Um, and actually that hasn't really set us in good stead for dealing with a very serious health emergency. Um, now I wrote in an article recently, plugging my own work here, um, that um, you know, there would be a, a sort of long flailing tail of populism, but that we were now into the state where that's fading a little bit and people are looking for serious politicians. And I'd even use the, the polling in Wales as a bit of an example of that as well. Just wonder whether you thought that I'm talking absolute rubbish or whether I might be onto something. Sarah? Um, I think to some extent popularist parties and groups are becoming very mainstream. Um, in the sense that you said, moderates are getting replaced with those that can repeat the party line and the party lines have gotten more extreme in some cases. I think there's always going to be popularist groups and I think Brexit, for an example, the Brexit party or UKIP or... The whatever reform. they are this week. Yeah, whatever they are. I think they're a classic example um, of this because they've shifted from Brexit onto COVID to a certain extent and opposing lockdown and opposing the rules that the government have put in place. So I think there's always going to be that populist aspect. But I think going back to the US elections, people did want someone who would probably be taken a bit more seriously which is a very sweeping generalisation, I know, but... There was Joe scope to be taken more seriously than Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think people wanted someone who would respond and not necessarily whatever way he responded, it was about being predictable or being more stable so that people knew what was coming. Um, and yeah, I do think the UK is very close to the US, but I think that's historic. Um, and I think the UK for many decades has favoured the US over Europe, despite the proximity of the UK to Europe, it's seen itself as being very American focused. So when something happens in the US, it does affect the UK. Um, but yeah, I think People were after someone more stable in the US. And even the fact that Scientific America, who's a very prestigious organization, endorsed Joe Biden. And it was the first time they'd endorsed a presidential candidate for 175 years. So that's quite impressive, to be honest. And whether it is because they wanted someone more stable or someone who considered the importance of climate change that's up to them to say yeah but if ever there was a moment for the scientific community to decide to endorse a president that probably was the election wasn't it yeah definitely um, I, I, i'll come to cal in just a second but i just wanted to pick up on, on an aspect of what sarah mentioned because i think there might be a, a bit of a welsh comparison i mentioned earlier on about the 
opinion polling suggesting that um, a significant number of people, a significant large number of people were supportive of, of Mark Drakeford and Welsh Government's approach to COVID compared to Boris Johnson UK governments. I wonder whether that point about consistency is part of that. Not necessarily that people are absolutely convinced that one's doing it right and one's doing it wrong, but that the messages in Wales have generally been pretty consistent. Whereas in England, you've had situations where it was, we need you to go back to work. We need you to go back to the office. Um, and then a few weeks later, it was, we want you to work from home again. Um, you had the, um, the furlough scheme definitely wasn't going to be extended. It definitely wasn't going to be extended. And then it was announced that it would be extended on the Saturday before the Monday people were due back. Um, you also had a, a probably unrealistic pledge that there wouldn't be another national lockdown, which in the end they had to go back on. Whereas whether one agrees with what's been done in Wales or not, it's been fairly consistent messaging, I think, hasn't it, throughout? Would, would people agree with me on that? Yeah, I'd say I'd agree with that as well. Um, I think there's always been an aspect of caution, more so in Wales and Scotland than in England. Um, and I think that has fed into how people are feeling about the two or three or four governments. Um, but no, I think there has been a bit more consistency and a bit more of a stable approach in Wales. So Callum, going back to my question about populism, has it, pa has it passed its peak? Um, no, <laughs> um, is what I'd have to say. Um, I do, um, I've, it, it doesn't sit well with me when I still hear a lot of people equate the votes of the so UK to leave the EU and the election of Trump in 2016 as being um, sort of indicators of the same thing. Um, that really doesn't sit well with me. Um, in, I do think there's quite a lot to be said. And as I say, I'm by no means an expert um, on um, on so on the the the. Uh, the elections in the states, but it does seem to me that actually in 2016 and 2020, the choice that that the sort of that sort of everyone had really was kind of the same thing. In that you had, on the one hand, you had the entertainer, the the guy who was trying to sort of sell himself as the guy who could do the kind of tough deals and who could sort of really um, sort of cut the red tape he was a man of the sort of ordinary sort of working kind of person and then you have the safe pair of hands probably more intelligent um the the option that was not as, um in any way as um sort of harsh around the edges um and i think in that way um the choice was the same i also think that um that um, the increasing tendency of a lot of people who saw sort of Trump get elected in 2016 as a sign that that was to be seen as a leap to the right was not quite right because actually quite a lot of the of the sort of people who voted for Trump in 2016 were the sort of people who in the past would would have he, 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 he like like you would think 
as being on the sort of left of um, sort of ordinary kind of politics, if we are to use those harsh kind of generalizations. Um, I also don't think that while we may have heightened kind of popularity for certain individuals who might be classed as kind of popular test, which, which is say, which as far as I know, just means literally popular in the same way that pop music is meant to be popular music. It's, um, it, it, it shouldn't be a dirty word is what I'm saying. Um, but it's been framed in that way. Um, I'm not sure political parties and organizations are quite the same. I think that although, um, and I'm sure there was a lot of people who probably voted for Trump in 2016 because they couldn't bear the thought of voting for Hillary. That said, I'm sure there's also quite a lot of people who voted for Trump in 2016 who so afterwards thought, well, that was a knife edge. I might not have voted for him. And actually, if I had the option again, I probably wouldn't. And it wouldn't really matter who, who the opposition was. Um, I think it's probably true to say that the, the, that the so greatest quality of Biden was quite simply the fact that he wasn't Trump. Um, and I mean, it's now that should be an alarm bell for everyone involved, that that is the extent to which sort of politics has got to um, in the sort of largest economy on the planet. Um, it should mean a lot more, I feel, than it does. Um, and I, but then, like, and I also have, I mean, of course, for what it's worth, I mean, the the increasing anger that I've heard a lot of people sort of talk about about um, you know the the um, about um, sort of Trump's um, sort of unwillingness to sort of leave the White House um, is on one hand quite funny, um, on the other hand. It's exactly what Trump supporters want him to do, because that's what they see Trump as. He's the guy who doesn't accept anything other than what is obvious and kind of clear-cut and is the right thing to kind of do. Now, clearly, for everyone like us, the, the, the right thing to do is to say that you lost and walk away. That's not what Trump supporters want him to do. It's also actually worth mentioning that he got more people to vote for him now than what he did in, 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 in um, 2016. Um, I, guess, I guess there's a point there as well about the sort of loser's consent, isn't there, which we didn't handle very well in this country with regards to Brexit. Um, you know, we, we're used to being in a situation where it's a vote is taken and it is accepted that that is the outcome. Um, and I think there was such a pushback there, and perhaps it's, it is different. I take your point, it's different. Um, but there is a little bit of a parallel there in the, um, the sort of Trump supporter line refusing to appreciate and accept the election result, isn't there? Which is a, a dangerous route to go. I, I can't quite imagine that um, uh, on the uh, first Friday in May this year that we're going to have people taking to the streets refusing to accept the Senate election result. Um, I hope we don't go that route. Um, but there is there is something about that pattern which is a bit concerning because it used to be taken for granted in a democratic society that when you lost you you took it on the chin, you accepted that you had to rebuild for the future battles but 
that you accepted that one was gone? Well, like, like I, I do think it's, it's a, I think it's extremely interesting that, you know, so that when I first started sort of getting into sort of politics when I was 15, 16, and I guess that, you know, so one of the first questions that I would ask my, you know, dad and my mum and everything was, so, so why doesn't everybody take more of an interest in what they do in politics? Because the only way that, you know, so as a kid, I'd ever heard about lots of kind of politicians be sort of spoken about was in a bad light. And I didn't understand this. And it was not because, um, you know, I, I thought, well, surely they've achieved something that's impacted you in a, in a good way. Um, and yet it seems like that, that when we actually do achieve the goal of getting a lot of people interested in politics, we have lots of people um, arguing about the results of an election. And we actually, have, we've almost kind of made our own bed and now we have to lie in it sort of thing. Um, because it does seem that the more people that become engaged in this kind of thing, the more the gate opens to fraud and all of the other things that have been sort of claimed, actually not entirely by um, ill-informed people. Yeah, I would agree as well. I think there's also an aspect of how elections have changed. So I think one thing is clear is that the US election was a Trump election. It was, do you want him or don't you? And Trump still got a lot of votes. So there are a lot of people in America, in the US, that still want him. And I think that in comparison to our elections, where they are starting to go the same way as well, like our last election was get Brexit done or don't. And I think and that's how many people voted as well. So I think there is something to say about how elections are now starting to be based on salient issues rather than their manifestos and what their party can actually give to people and I think that has an aspect of why people are not accepting the result because they'll focus so strongly on that one aspect that that then dominates the media as well. I've let this conversation run on a little longer than I originally planned because the kind people at Zoom posted up a message midway through saying that the 40 minute limit wasn't going to apply, which is very kind of them. So thank you, good people of Zoom. Um, and, and thank you for allowing this recording to happen without Sarah turning into a cyborg, which is what happened last time I attempted to record something with Sarah. Not her fault, it has to be said. Um, but let, let's bring it to a conclusion. Um, we've talked about this year. We've, we've talked about 2020, the challenges that it has brought. Um, so what's a 2020 Christmas going to be like? Now, I'm not necessarily looking to, uh, to find out exactly what the situation is going to be around the, um, the, the dining room table in your family home. But what, you know, Christmas isn't cancelled. What, whatever else is going on, Christmas isn't cancelled. It's going to be different. What's it going to look like? They're thinking. While they're thinking, I'm going to throw one out there. We, we have quite um, carols from King's College, Cambridge every year on, on Christmas Eve broadcast. Now, there's not going to be a cathedral full of people this year, but I bet that they will find a way to do something of that nature. It might be it might be the equivalent of the Swan Lake in the bath. I'm, I'm not suggesting the choristers are going to be in the bath, but it's going to be something of that nature. There is a scope for innovation. 
I think this might be one of the most interesting Christmases we have. I'm I'm a big fan of Christmas. I'm a big traditionalist when it comes to Christmas. But I wonder a little bit in the way that I'd perhaps hear my my grandparents when they were alive talking about wartime Christmas. You know, it wasn't good. It wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't the ideal, but it stuck with them, the memories of it. Um, and I wonder whether we might be going through something of a similar experience in the next month. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think on Christmas Day, there's going to be a lot of Zoom calls, team calls, all sorts of calls, but not necessarily with the people you would think of spending Christmas with, but that extended family that you might not have seen for months, you might give them a call to say, Merry Christmas, when you haven't actually done that before. You've never called them on Christmas Day. So I think that could be positive, trying to be optimistic about everything. Um, good. I like the ending on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best. Uh, no pressure, Callum. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, I, I think that actually the, um, it will be a sort of Christmas, which and I know that I started with this kind of comment, but it will be a Christmas for um, those who have been able to spend that time as a kind of family. It will be a time that they appreciate it more. Um, and um, it's very, it's very it's sort of interesting of what you say, Nick, in the sense that, you know, um, it's easy for us to look past the fact that, you know, that from sort of 1939 until the end of, like sort of 1945, there were five obvious kind of Christmases then, and everyone enjoyed them, as far as I know. Um, and all of those kind of Christmas days took place when there were, manned jets in the air under the orders of Hermann Goering um, and as far as I know the vast majority of people here enjoy their their sort of Christmas mornings in much the way that they did for the other four years um, and it's kind of worth getting that in context kind of sometimes that for as long as people can you know, share those times in maybe the way that they haven't been able to over the past eight or nine months. Um, I think there'll be a lot of team calls, a lot of Zoom calls. I think there'll be an awful lot of people who actually feel more included this time than maybe they have done um, in quite a few years. Um, and I also think there'll be probably, um, um, it'll be a time when the sort of sales of iPads, tablets, and such as her products go through the roof um, for exactly that kind of reason. Um, yeah, I, I do think it will be um, a very interesting time in at least as much as it will offer an, an obvious sort of opportunity for lots of people to think about what's happened this year. Um, I think especially with the talk of um, a, a, a potential kind of vaccine maybe being sort of made of made available um well i mean in this maybe sort of 10 days or so um so yeah i think it'll be a very interesting time for everyone involved really i think that perhaps um provides quite an overarching account of this conversation in a way isn't it that it can be very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day, but there is definitely some value in taking a deep breath and looking at this in context it is a year unlike any other that i think it's fair to say 
fairly safe to say any of us have ever experienced. Um, and um, and yes, there, there are there are some positives amongst the darkness there. Um, and on that note, because I can't think if I keep talking, I'm going to make it any better than that. So we're going to round off there. Um, I'd like to thank Sarah and I would like to thank Callum. Um, and I would like to thank you for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs>